Good afternoon, everybody. Can everyone hear me okay? Am I too close, too far? You can hear me at the back? Perfect. Thank you. So I'm Dr. James Brooks, the Melanie Trent de Shutter Library Director here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and I'm delighted to welcome you to another Noontime Lecture. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan Nation that inhabited the land where the museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and to maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story, of course, is integral to Virginia's past, its present, and its future. And we also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Anne Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. Just a couple of notes before we get started today about some upcoming events at the VMHC. So on Monday, June 5th at 5.30, we're gonna be having a member Monday. So our members can come along to Virginia House, to the gardens there, and they can enjoy a picnic accompanied by live jazz music. So pack your uh, blankets and your picnic baskets and come along to that one because it will be very pleasant. Next week, it's gonna be first Fridays at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, so a slightly different vibe. Uh, on the first Friday of every month, this family-friendly event offers the chance for the public to enjoy free museum admission, a chance to see rare items from our library collections, as well as cafe specials, family activities, food trucks, and music. And to remind you finally, our next in-person lecture is gonna take place on Thursday, June 8th at noon, and we're going to be joined by Professor Michael Ayres Trotty, who will be here to speak about his new book, The End of Public Execution, Race, Religion and Punishment in the American South. Today's talk is going to tell the story of Richmonder Park F. Smith's service in the British RAF. Park was the last US pilot to be accepted into the ranks of the RAF through their Second World War training program at War Eagle Field in Los Angeles. Park would sail to England, swear allegiance to the king, and between 1942 and 1946, fly 129 missions over North Africa, Italy, and the North Sea, before finally returning home safely. Park, of course, wrote much about his missions, but also of human connection and camaraderie in wartime, and it is to his comrades that much that his writing was dedicated. Here today to tell us more about Park's story is Preston Smith, Park's son, who collected these writings and brought them to life as the 2020 book Spitfire, an American World War II fighter pilot in the RAF. Many of you may actually remember the Smith family flying aerobatics at um, the Barnstormers Air Show at King's Dominion. Does anyone remember that? Show of hands. There's a few in here. There we go. Um, so that was... Um, Father Park piloting a biplane as sons Jimmy and Preston manned the hot air balloon and assisted skydivers. So we're delighted to welcome Preston to the VMHC to offer an insider's view of his father's unique military service. So strap yourselves in and please join me in welcoming Preston to the podium as we prepare to take off today. Well, good afternoon, and thanks for coming in. Uh, is, can everybody hear me as well? I'm standing back a little further. Hear me in the back? Okay, great. I do have a bit of bad news. Uh, this is not going to be a history lesson 
or a firsthand account of an infamous battle. This is simply a story of an, of an American who, unbeknownst to his own family, was a hero who was born to fly. He'd go to extreme lengths to serve his own country, and even after rejection by his own country and neighboring countries, he found a home in the RAF where he lived out his dream. I'll give you some snippets of what he endured, which did not come to light until about 30 years later. But first, let me give you a flavor of Dad. The piece on the cover of the book was given to Dad by Alan Holt in the 1980s. Alan and Dad were in the squadron together. That wasn't the end of the story, though. I remember going by our house, Fairfield, one day and seeing Dad sitting in the library watching television, and next to him was a palette of paint. Curiosity sat in until I looked at the painting. Dad had gone and painted in the flak burst you see here today. <laughs> when asked what had come over him, he had a very simple answer. The painting did not convey the true story. I believe Alan would have laughed hysterically if he had known. Fortunately for the family, it wasn't a Picasso. Dad was born in 1920 and began his illustrious life at an early age. At age five, while playing kick the can, Dad inadvertently ran out into the street where he was immediately run over by a telephone repair truck. His biggest concern was how upset his mom and dad were going to be for playing in the street in the middle of the night. James, his older brother, made sure everyone in the neighborhood knew what happened by running through the street yelling, he's dead, he's dead. <laughs> no one ever told dad whether his voice was of panic or joy. He suspected the latter. A collision with a mail truck with his bicycle two years later almost did him in. He slammed into the side of the truck, flew over the hood, and landed on his head on a concrete sidewalk where he remained unconscious for hours. And as if that wasn't enough, he managed to roll the family car by age 13. Approximately 60 years later, I happened to be with one of my clients who came up to me, said, your dad was responsible for my first car accident. Dad had rolled the car. Dad never mentioned a word to anybody that there was a passenger in the car with him. <laughs> Dad became fascinated with aviation at about age eight. So much so, he, he was enlisted as the chief scrounger for a neighborhood kid who was in the process of building a World War I British biplane in his dad's garage. Dad would be responsible for scrounging up the wood strips from a local lumber yard about a half mile away. His reward was the opportunity to taxi the finished product. Unbeknownst to my dad, the lumberyard manager was well aware of the numerous tricks to the yard, which explained the sudden appearance of the wooden strips placed at the entrance of the yard <laughs> and the nominal bills that were sent to dad's father, which were never mentioned until years later. Not until later that year when dad had a 15-minute flight and a Curtis Robin did he realize he had to fly. So after attending UVA for a year and getting accepted into the civil pilot training program, Dad dropped out and received his pilot's license in May of 1940. 
he continued to accumulate numerous hours until he was accepted into the Civil Aeronautics Authority, where he learned aerobatics under Vernon Squeak Burnett. One morning, Dad was slated to fly with Squeak in a Waco. It was early morning, cold as the Dickens, and it didn't take much to enrage Squeak. They were about 3,000 feet when Squeak yelled to ask Dad if his seatbelt was tight. Dad, not knowing what Squeak was up to, checked it to make sure his seatbelt was comfortably tight and gave a thumbs up. With that, Squeak flipped the Waco on its back and Dad immediately shot out of the cockpit, dangling from seatbelt in a U-shaped form in the slipstream. As you may or may not know, the fuel tank was located in the upper wing and the fuel was pouring out of the vent. Squeak held the position for about 30 seconds until Dad was thoroughly soaked, then rolled upright and asked very sweetly if Dad's seatbelt was still tight. <laughs> Needless to say, the aerobatic training would prove invaluable later. Having accumulated numerous hours, Dad decided to try his luck at the Naval Air Corps at the Naval Air Station in Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, after nine hours of medical tests, he was told he flunked due to high blood pressure and a physical deformity. Mind you, the first two tests he took were the first two that he failed. After a very painful operation to connect to the deformity, he was rejected again because the Navy doctor did not consider the surgery a success. However, that didn't deter Dad. His good friend Dave Satterfield's father was in the House of Representatives at the time. Dad called him and asked for all the information he could get on the RAF recruiting scheme. With $50 in his wallet, his pilot's logbook, and his medical direct, uh, rejection, Dad boarded a train to New York to seek out an appointment with the Canadian Aviation Board. I mentioned this little tidbit because it tells you how precipitous my father was. He met with the recruiting officer who immediately informed my father that the last class of flight instruction had been formed and were on the way to the RAF War Eagle Field in California. Well, when dad mentioned his pilot's license going to waste, the recruiting officer's interest peaked. As long as dad didn't need initial flight training, passed his medical and flight exam, the recruiting officer would try and get him into the last refresher class. So at 4 p.m., the recruiting officer put a call into Dr. Ray. Dad needed to complete a medical exam by the end of the day. Dad figured the battery of tests he needed to complete would never be done in time. However, off he went. Dr. Ray's office was about 20 square feet with a chair, a desk, and a window that opened to a hollow center. This acted as an air shaft for the inside offices. Dr. Ray proceeded with the eye and the ear tests, listened to dad's chest, and then motioned dad to the sink with a small glass for a urine test. Dad returned the full glass to the doctor who held it up to the light and pronounced, looks good to me. <laughs> with that, he turned around and poured the contents out the window down the air shaft. He called the recruiting officer and announced that dad had passed. The examination took all of 40 minutes. 
I mentioned these little chance meetings as being in the right place at the right time because they continued through dad's full life. After his refresher course, he was posted to Mockton to get, to get his orders. Here he learned he was the last American to be exported to the RAF. The trip from Mockton to England was a mystery. Dad knew he was going to be shipped to England with no rank or number. When, where, or how was all kept quiet due to the ongoing war. He figured the train ride would be destined to a seaport on the East Coast, which would narrow it down to Halifax, Boston, or New York. After the hours passed by, it was determined it had to be New York. There he stepped off the train in the middle of the night in the pouring rain and a blackout. The only thing visible was a gigantic steel hull where he was handed his bunk card. Not until he boarded and arrived in a bright lobby did he see the cartouche of the ship's name, HMS Queen Elizabeth. A few days later, Dad would arrive at a Dastrel house in Whitehall, headquarters of the RAF, where he swore allegiance to the king. He received his commission as pilot officer and his serial number. In the process, immediately lost his citizenship to the U.S. Fortunately, two years later, it was restored through an act of Congress. The day after his arrival, Dad was summoned by the wing commander, who was in charge of posting to operational training for the Bomber and Fighter Command. This is another place where Dad's rabbit foot came into play. Back home, his family Boston Bulldog happened to be a rare Haggerty strand. To Dad's surprise, there was a photograph of the same type of dog on the wing commander's desk. As luck would have it, Dad reached in his wallet, pulled out a picture of his mother and Nod, and put it next to the wing commander's photo. Needless to say, the rest of the meeting consisted of cordial dog talk. Dad went from pilot officer Smith to Smithy, not Smitty, Smithy. At the conclusion of the meeting, the wing commander gave Dad a choice, bomber command or fighter command at Turnhill preparing for Spitfires, Hurricanes, and Mustangs. Without grinning too much, Dad chose fighter command. Dad noted how a small thing such as a photograph can change one's life forever. Fighter training commenced at Haywarden at the 41st Operational Training Unit. It began in the Harvard, which was the early version of the AT-6. After two circuit and bumps with his flight instructor, Dad was sent off to Solo. Typical of the British, no time or ounce of fuel wasted. The next was five hours of navigational training and formation flying. But the big surprise was showing up in a few days later at the hangar where the flight sergeant introduced the P-51 Mustang. He proceeded to review the tabs, the levers, takeoff, cruise and approach speeds, as well as temperatures and starting and stopping procedures. The flight sergeant then asked, who's first? Not a hand went up. Then he said, all right, Mr. Smith, you are the most familiar with the Harvard, have a go at it. So off he went. But I believe Dad enjoyed the visit from the group captain the best. Having heard about the quickness of the P-51, the group captain insisted he have a go at it. When he returned after his flight, 
He was so impressed, he actually danced with excitement. Well, after the flight sergeant calmed him down, he had the group captain fill out her evaluation sheet. Well, the group captain looked at the sheet, reached across the desk, grabbed for a large black crayon, and wrote across the sheet. Now, Dad is paraphrasing here. I'm quoting Dad. She goes like manure off a shovel with little more noise than a duck flatulence. All Dad could think about was the look on the faces of the air ministry when they got this most secret evaluation. So Dad's first chance to fly, spit came soon after. Air ministry asked for volunteers to go to the Middle East where Dad knew most of the fighter squadrons were located. He and most Canadians quickly signed in, signed on in hopes of getting close to the Spitfire, Dad had to train in a Hawker Hurricane. The manufacture of the Spitfire had just begun, so his hopes were really high. However, his first flight in the Hurricane almost became a disaster. Again, another rabbit's foot. The checkout was, as usual, brief. This is how you start it. This is how you stop it. Undercarriage lever is on the right. Make sure you select wheels up as soon as you're airborne or you might get a hydraulic lock, which dad did. However, to no avail on his final approach, <coughs> the undercarriage lever wouldn't budge. The aerodrome control pilot immediately shot up a red flare, at which point dad banked away to show his wheels were stuck. As he looked back, he saw the meat wagon headed out on the runway. After realizing he would need to do a belly-up landing, Dad went through what he thought was the proper procedures. Flaps down, canopies locked open, seat lowered, harness as tight as possible, hand on ignition switch and line up for the grass strip. At about 20 feet, he gave the lever one more good whack, hitting it on the top. To his surprise, he got the wheels down green light just before touching down. The instructor had neglected to tell dad. The lever was spring-loaded and had to be depressed to operate to down. Dad later found out the instructor had never flown the hurricane. <laughs> he wondered how many planes and lives were lost due to this one little small item. Dad's appreciation for the Spitfire was not fully recognized until it was announced that there would be a full aerial demonstration one afternoon. The demonstration would be done by the head test pilot, Alex Henshaw. Dad was to comment later that he had seen many aerobatic performances in all types of aircraft, but never one to match Alex's of more than 55 years ago. Both my mom and dad became very good friends with the Henshaws. I also had an opportunity to meet Alex, and I must say he's one of the few people that have left an impression on my life. When I toured the Virginia Military Aviation Museum, I was thrilled to see that Alex was honored there. So dad's next brush with the rabbit's foot, are you getting this yet? Lots of rabbit's foot going on? <laughs> was with the 225 squadron. The field was configured as a square with a squadron at each corner. Dad and his number two, Jack Wooten, were sitting in their cockpits half asleep when the flare went up for them to scramble. In a matter of seconds, their wheels were leaving the runway. Wooten was 20 feet off to dad's wingtip, 
his eyes glued on dad to remain as close as possible. As dad glanced to his right, his heart stopped. Two aircraft from the other squadron on the right had seen the flare and thought it was for them. With their noses up and climbing, dad's reaction was to duck. Trying not to gain an inch of altitude, dad retracted the wheels with Wooten following it as well. He held his breath as the two who had seen dad passed overhead. Scared to death, dad began climbing, a climbing turn when Wooten called and requested to abort because he said his engine was running rough. Dad continued on following the vectors to 20,000 feet where he arrived just in time to see two 109s headed to the north. When he returned to base, the Irk's first few words were, cripes, that was bloody close. Most British fighters were equipped with wooden props. Not until Dad walked over to Wooten's aircraft did he realize how close it had been. His prop was missing about four inches on each blade. That explained the rough engine. About an hour later, the other squadron called, describing large gashes back near the tailwheel. Wooten had no clue due to the fact his eyes were glued on Dad, which they should have been. He missed the whole show. There was an Aerodome control pilot named Tony Haley was constantly concerned about Dad's pay compared to the U.S. Under duress and Dad's loyalty to the Brits, Dad applied for a transfer. After receiving no response, Hay, who didn't appreciate this type of treatment, decided it was best they fly to Constantine where the Mediterranean Allied Air Force was located. Once there, they were ushered into a large office manned by a sergeant who seemed to be familiar with the transfer. The sergeant disappeared into an adjacent office and immediately returned telling Dad and Hay they needed to speak to the general. When Dad entered the office, he immediately recognized his boyhood hero, James Doolittle. Due to the fact the Navy didn't have a flight surgeon, the transfer was filed in the round file. The general then asked Dad if he really wanted to do this transfer, with which Dad replied that he would drop it if it meant he had to go back to the States and examine and retrain. Dad's response solved the problem, and after answering questions about how he happened in the RAF, they saluted and thanked him. One last story regarding Dad's continuous string of luck on his way back from a reconnaissance shoot, after a very long sortie, Dad decided to relax a little and enjoy the flight home. No sooner had he put his feet up when a huge explosion came from the engine. Black smoke filled the cockpit and the prop was barely ticking over. He could barely see the air dome a couple of miles ahead and decided he had the altitude to make it home with no power. Once back on the ground and towed to the dispersal, the ground crew unbuttoned the cowling and just stood there shaking their heads. There was a hole the size of a baseball where a push rod or something had exploded through the sidewall. Why the engine did not seize was a mystery to Dad. If it had, the prop would have stopped and acted as an air brake, making it impossible to make it back to the field. Another one of 
rabbit's foot's used up. I believe the rabbit would be now quadriplegic. So soon after dad received his certificate for flight instructor, he received a message from Mrs. Dexter at the American Eagle Club. This message concerned a Sergeant Christian who was on his deathbed and asking for dad. Now dad knew several named Christian, but couldn't imagine which one it could be or how to get in contact. Ms. Dexter had said the only clue she had was that he had told his doctors that dad was his neighbor, but failed to say whether it was England or America. Dad puzzled over this until the next day, and then he called her back. She remembered that he had told her he was in an American field hospital in Salisbury Plains. That settled it. Dad had to say it was either Andy or Stuart Christian and he hadn't been aware that either one of them were in that part of the world. So dad went to his CEO, told him the problem, and asked him if he could suggest any way he could locate Sergeant Christian. The CEO didn't even hesitate, and he turned and said, the Salisbury's plains, smooth rolling hills with no trees or hedgerows. Take my magister, fly over, and when you see the big marquee with a red cross on the top, land alongside. And this is in the middle of the war. New airplane he's never been in, and now he's flying to someplace strange. Dad accepted his generous offer and was airborne in a little low-wing open cockpit, two-seater within the hour. It was a beautiful day, and about a 1,000 feet, one could see several of the enormous circus tents with a large red top, with a crowded cross on the top, he had no clue which one held Christian. Dad landed beside the first one he came to, but they had no idea who Christian might be and were not permitted to give out any information to anyone not in the American forces because he was a battle casualty. It was not, it, it was useless for Dad to, to argue with him, so he took off and resumed his search. There was another marquee on the top of the hill next to an RAF field. Dad landed, refueled, and hitched a ride to the hospital. <clears throat> he was met by the adjunct who poured over his records for a few minutes. Dad was about to turn and leave when he acknowledged that there was indeed a Sergeant Stuart Christian in the intensive sick bay. Dad told him that he was his friend and would like to see him. Yep, can't be done. He said, he's a battle casualty and you're in a foreign service. Dad was as nice as he could be explaining, look, he had proof that he was American and that they were neighbors in Richmond and he had been, and he had been asked by Christian to come see him. Mm -mm. The lieutenant wasn't moved and ended the interview by rudely turning his back on Dad. Dad was about to explode, saying that he had looked all over the plains for Christian and wasn't about to be denied seeing him. Well, that did it. He called the MPs. Luckily, one of the doctors passing caught part of the conversation, and when he heard the name Christian, he announced himself as Stewart's doctor. He had been in a foxhole when a grenade or a shell had exploded. <laughs> 
and he was sure to lose his badly infected leg, maybe his arm, and possibly his life. He took Dad in to see a pale, freckle-faced ghost who was out like a light. There was no doubt it was poor old punky Christian, his Richmond neighbor, looking as though he was breathing his last. Dad, needless to say, was quite shaken. The miracle drugs didn't seem to be working on Punky. The doctor said there was a new one that they had on hand called penicillin. They could take off his leg now and possibly save his life or try this new drug. If it killed the infection, there was hope. But if it didn't, they would more than likely lose Punky. There wasn't any time to contact his family and dad, to his horror, the doctor looked to dad. Dad told him he knew Christian and if there was any chance, even at the risk of his own life, he would go for the penicillin. Yet the final decision rested on the doctor. He asked the doctor, he told him, he said he would check back in a few days, but if things look bad, please let him know. So six days passed, dad returned prepared for the worst. Dad had no trouble with the adjunct and was led straight back to Stewart's room. Trying not to, dis to cause any disturbance, he opened the door quietly. Punky was sitting up in the bed feeding chocolates to the nurses. The doctor came in, told dad the stuff had worked better than he had hoped and that Punky should be on his way home in no time. What a relief. May 1944, Dad was tour expired. He had made it. There were a few more episodes Dad encountered on his way back to England from Italy. To this day, we can't believe how he su survived. He continued on as a ferry pilot, instructor, and eventually back to an active P-51 squadron. How he got there still amazes us. He was eventually transferred to Bushy Park, where he was appointed as mess secretary. Sorry. Um, and boy, did he hate it. I just can't see my dad as a mess secretary. Um, VE Day came and went. Dad missed his flying, the excitement, and especially he missed his friends. However, a few days later, he receives a call from the station adjunct, who instructed dad to report to his office. When he arrived, the adjunct had a document containing instructions that dad was to be sworn in as a king's messenger of his majesty's service. He was to fly that afternoon to Scotland for further instructions. The adjunct told dad he needed to carry a sidearm as well as the sealed envelope, which was placed in the briefcase, chained to dad, which was never to leave his side. Dad had heard of the king's messengers, but had no clue who they were or how they were selected. Once he arrived in Scotland, the commanding officer opened the briefcase with the attached orders for Dad to deliver the sealed envelope to the commanding officer at the Royal Canadian Air Force in Dorval, Canada. Dad was ecstatic because he thought he'd be able to call home. Dad's description of this trip was priceless. He never felt more important in his life. He arrived after a long flight and reported immediately to the CO's office. When he arrived in the normal 
when he announced in a normal tone that he was reporting as the king's messenger, the whole room went silent. The envelope was given to the commanding officer who immediately opened it and asked dad if he knew what was in the dispatch. Dad replied, certainly not. The seal was unbroken. And the CO then replied, would you like to know what it says? Dad said, if you think I should. The CO went on. You must have some friends in pretty high places. It reads, the officer bearing this dispatch, Flight Lieutenant P.F. Smith 134347, is to proceed to the United States on three weeks leave at the termination of which he is to return to Dorval, Canada for transportation back to the U.S. Dad returned home to a new house, new bed, and a new life. He met my mom and sums it up with feelings as thus, quote, after 53 years, my heart still misses a beat when she walks in the room. Dad returned, Dad returned back to Bushy Park where he spent another six months as the mess secretary. His last flight was the delivery of British Army Major Forsyth from Hendon to Kingston and returned to Hendon. It was Dad's last flight with the RAF and the last as a pilot for 20 years. It was nine years later that Dad received an official mention in dispatch for distinguished service from the Royal Crown. A parchment in the Crown's gold insignia arrived without ceremony in the mail. To this day, I continue to strive to be half the man my father was. Thank you. Uh, um, I would love to take any questions. Uh, thank you for showing up. Uh, I, I believe there are a couple of people in the room with mics if there are any questions. Is that yes? Yeah, they're coming around now. Um, don't know if you have any questions, but they'll be glad to bring you the right to to raise your hand. There are no questions. I covered my source. <laughs> uh, up front. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, he was at Barnstormers at uh, King's Dominion, which was back here in Virginia up in Hanover. Uh, yeah, they were flying, doing aerobatics in the Stearmans, which had no fuel injection. So he moved to a very high-performance Cap-10 French airplane, which had uh, the fuel injection. Which And he was one of the few that had a waiver to ground zero where he could take off from the one way and flip the plane upside down and do all the kind of aerobatics he wanted to do. So he was a very accomplished pilot. There's no question. Anybody in this type of war that can get in airplanes that they've only put an hour or two in and live through it um, is pretty remarkable because the majority of them, I think it was a 50 or 60% rate of those pilots died, usually landing the airplanes. So it was pretty unusual for him to, he loved to fly and he had a real knack for it. And I had a chance to fly the Spitfire about three years ago and it was phenomenal. This is kind of personal. The stories that you tell, did he write other, other books? No, this is the only book. This remember my mother made him write this after she knew all of this stuff had gone on. We as a family didn't know, my mother did. And she turned around and told him he needed to put it in a memoir. And we're glad he did. When when was this written? It started probably in the 80s. Okay. 
yeah, he started doing it, I guess it was in the 80s, and then he did a first rough draft, which was called Reflections, and then it moved on to Virginia and Best Blue. And then after he passed, I was going through Fairfield, and we went through computers. We, have, we found a floppy disk, a floppy disk, <laughs> which had the original copy, and a lot of the things Dad left out, he didn't put in the book. And I got it, and with the help of Little Star Communications, we put it all together and came out with Spitfire. And a lot of the stories and a lot of the photographs and a lot of the letters, I think you can see in the back, we didn't find until we found this secret drawer. So it was great. So that was back in early 2002, 2020, we published it. Okay, did you, prior one was Virginian and Best Blue? Mm -hmm. Okay. They periodically have book sales here. And I think yeah. I picked the Virginia Best Blue. You, the stories are very similar to what yeah, I Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a lot more in this one. I think that, that book was about 100 and some pages, and this is close to 270 pages. So, so we have a lot more in it. Thank but you. that's great. Yeah, thank you. Some, uh, yeah, I got another one. Um, how, how old was he when he stopped flying? Uh, when he, you mean when he stopped flying when he came back from the war? Yeah. Uh, he was 25, 26, and didn't fly for another 20 years. He came to Richmond. Uh, obviously, he was in Richmond for 20 years. He didn't fly until he bought the Stearman and immediately got back into it and got into aerobatics and, and uh, teaching his children how to fly. Great, great bike boy. I was not a good student. <laughs> Can't beat the best of them. Yeah, I am still here. Barely, though. <laughs> I've had my moments. Uh, any, yes? I've come across stories or interesting information about the uh, flying tigers and the P-40 in China. No, not, not, not from him. He pretty much focused on his campaign and the P-40, he, he pretty much, he was very busy with obviously the Spitfire and the Hurricanes and, and the P-51s, uh, but no, he, uh, he, he didn't say much. There are a lot more stories in the book. I only gave you snippets of a couple of them. And it was interesting how he wrote this book and he didn't want it to be, uh, yeah, he, he really, he kind of wanted to make it a easy book to read family would enjoy and would carry it on. So it's it's kind of humorous, but it's also soft, easy reading. There's not a lot of blood or whatever you might call it, but it's it's a it's an easy it's pretty much what he wanted to spend his life doing. I'll ask a question. Uh oh <laughs> so one of the um what you just mentioned that it is a book that's sort of a man's good war story he had a you know a good, good war. war um but recently you uh, discovered that he had been interviewed about his uh involvement in the battle of norway and there was quite a bit of heroism involved that he didn't write about and again we think it was that greatest generational voice in which he wrote the book um, could you summarize uh, what you learned about his involvement in the battle of norway that is not in this book we might do a new chapter. Well, I, I think it, it's probably going to be best as a new chapter, but it will explain a little bit 
about my father. He was very modest. He wouldn't say a lot about anything. And I was invited last year, we were supposed to do the presentation to the RAF club in London and it got canceled because of COVID. And I got this email from Kato who basically announced himself as an author. And he had written two books on the Battle of Norway and had interviewed my father numerous times. Nobody in the family knew this. Absolutely nobody knew it. And he wanted to meet with me. And he said when he meets, when he, when he had a chance to meet with me, he wanted to bring one of dad's squadron, squadron mate's sons, which would have been about my age. So I thought this was pretty interesting because I'd never heard of the Battle of Norway, except it was the largest battle in Norway in the war. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll come over. Well, you know, with the airlines, you got a year. So I said, okay, I'll fly to London for lunch. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, if I didn't, I would have lost the ticket the next month. So <laughs> I said, okay, I'd, I'd be glad to join you for lunch. And I meet this gentleman from Norway, Kato, who sits down with me and he said, did you know I interviewed your father? And I said, no, nobody in the family knew that. And he said, well, he was very much involved in the Battle of Norway and did some of the most courageous things in the Battle of Norway. And I know in the book that he had mentioned a little bit about flying to Norway and, and getting into a dogfight, but he didn't say specifically what all this was about. So I had a wonderful conversation with this gentleman who told me about this, and it's in the book, both the books of the Battle of Norway, which I think we'll end up probably putting in this as well as another edition. But at the same time, I got to meet the son of one of his squadron mates. And we kind of talked about our dads and how, how modest they were. You just, you just didn't hear this stuff. So I think it was more of, it was a surprise to us as well as to the family. But at the same time, it kind of showed us that generation they didn't talk about what they did. And my thought is, boy, if there's anybody in this room who had mothers or fathers, whoever did stuff like that, see if you can get in a memoir because that generation has disappeared. Well, there was somebody back here? Wait a moment. I just wondered if you'd talk about how your mom and dad met and how your mom dealt with a flyer. Uh, just curious. Well, he, he had first met my mother, um, his roommate um, at UVA uh, was, you probably won't know him, was William Preston, William Preston, Billy Preston, who was a great football player at UVA and was in the Secret Seven. And his sister was Alice. And he introduced him to, to dad, or they introduced dad to my mom. And that was while he was at UVA. So he, he knew her. He came back and had met her a couple of times. And all he could remember was this pretty young lady showing up in a beautiful car that said Fairfield on the side. And all he could say was, yeah, that's pretty impressive. Uh, so he met him through, obviously, the connections of their families. Uh, did not really get totally involved with her until after he came back from the war. And we'll tell you in the book, 
she never was comfortable with any of his flying because when we did the air shows at Barnstormers, we did at King's Dominion, I think it was 490 air shows. And it was done over four and a half, five years. And we never had an incident. But every air show, mother was in the parking lot knitting. She would never watch any of the air shows because her whole family was out in the middle of it. So she did have to put up with some. <laughs> she didn't have to put up a lot about the but they did go back, and you'll see in the book, they did go back to London. He went back every year for the uh, reunions. Um, he met tremendous friends, and you'll see some of the forewords by some of his friends uh, who have carried on to be family friends. I mean, they're now friends of ours. I go over every year. I meet these people, and, and Dad was, he, he was so loyal to the Brits, it, it, he should have lived there. But he came back and thank goodness you met mom because I wouldn't be here. <laughs> there was another question. Oh, Ted, here you go. Do you have a mic? Yes, or Run. <laughs> Did your dad keep a diary of what, of his days in the war? Because the detail in the book is just incredible and, and entertaining throughout. Well, you know, it, it was you'll see in the book that he his flight uh, logbook was lost. So he started logging all of this stuff. And I remember, I remember seeing it at Fairfield, but it disappeared. So I think a lot of the information, I mean, there is no way I could remember this kind of stuff. I mean, can you imagine 50 or 60 years later, remembering the stuff that he puts in this book and it's very succinct and he had to have something. And we think he had that log book that helped him through this, but that was it. Everything else was up here and he wrote it on the computer. And that's all we had. We, we, unfortunately, we can't find the logbook. We, I did get the letters and all this other stuff about, you know, when his brother died and everything from the letters, but nothing that he had wrote in a diary. Did you ever fly an MLM's traverse with him? <laughs> I did his whole, his whole aerobatic routine. And the funny thing about it is I got out of the airplane. He, he had a routine he did up at Kings Dominion. It lasted about five minutes. And he came up to me one day. And by the way, he had oriental carpets where you put your feet in the airplane so mother would be comfortable. <laughs> but I went and got in the airplane and did one of his aerobatic uh, routines with him. It was about five minutes. And I got back. And I thought I had run a a full marathon. I was beat up. And he was like, what'd you think? You want to go do it again? And I was like, oh, no, no, thank you, pal. Uh-uh. <laughs> no, thank you. I think he was, I think he was 70 some years old when he told me that. So uh, he just loved it. He just absolutely loved it. And he took all of his friends from people would come up and ask. He would not take anybody up flying unless you asked him. He never volunteered. You've got to tell us about the continuing relationship and, and uh, what the RAF did for you on their 100th anniversary and your brother. Uh, do we have time? Uh, one of his dear friends, and you'll, uh, it's not in the book, um, is Sir Ian McFadian. And Ian at the time had met dad up in Washington, D.C. And father didn't know who he was. He was, Ian had had somebody in the um, British adjunct come up to him or the attache come up to him and say, you need to meet Park Smith. So Ian went up and introduced himself to, well, they became best friends. 
And um, Ian has always been a good friend, but um, he invited us. Dad could not get back over to England. I got accepted into the RAF club, which was very unusual at the time because only officers get into the Royal Air Force Club. And they basically, when I asked to be accepted because that was dad's wish that he wanted to carry on with the family, somebody in the RAF to keep keep the memory, keep, keep the two organizations or keep the family in the RAF and the Brits together. Um, he, uh, I sent this thing off to, at the time, the president of the RAF, and he came back and I told him my father basically was not doing well and this was his wish. And they came back and said that they were gonna grandfather me in as a member. Now they've changed that rule, I think, since then over the last 30 years. But I got into the RAF club just because dad wanted to do this. And dad, so Ian knew this. Ian knew I had gotten into the club. So he called me out of the blue. I had no clue who this guy was. He called me on the phone and said, I'm a friend of your father's. I met him. I'd love to speak with him. And I said, Ian, it's not going to happen. He's not doing well. You couldn't understand anything he says. So Ian said, well, he goes into the story and I said, Ian, I'd love to come see you. I'm coming over to England to thank everybody in the RAF club for allowing me to join. And he said, when are you coming? And I said, it was, uh, I think it was Ju July. Yeah, it was, it was July. And um, it was the 100th uh, centennial, whatever, of the RAF. And um, no, it wasn't. It was the Queen's, it, it's Queen's Jubilee. Sorry, getting them confused. Uh, so I said I was coming over in July and be delighted to meet with him. He said, that's wonderful. Love to meet with you, Preston. Still not knowing who this person is. We're doing emails back and forth. So he turns around and I said, well, Ian, I'm only going to be there for a couple of days. I had no clue it was the Queen's Jubilee at that point. And I said, I'm only going to be there for a couple of days, but where would you like to meet? And the email I got back was at Windsor, of course. And I'm going, oh, good. What have I gotten myself into? And I just kind of said, okay, and love to, he said, I will send you an invitation. I'll send you how to get here, blah, blah, blah. Well, my first phone call was to my twin brother. I said, man, I don't know what I got myself into. I said, you got to come with me. This is, I'm, this guy's invited me to Windsor Castle for lunch. And um, needless to say, my brother goes, hold on. So he starts doing the Googling thing, looking up Ian. Okay, who has a resume that's about like this? He is the governor of Windsor Castle. His boss is the queen. So <laughs> he's going, man, we got to get over there for this. This is going to be unbelievable. So through all of this, I get invited over um, to England and Ian treats us like royalty. He literally treated like a royalty. Not only did he invite us to Windsor Castle for lunch and he gave us a six hour tour of Windsor Castle behind the red, I mean, he, we had security guards moving the red rope across and taking us places that nobody's ever been. And he was showing us, but not only did he do that, my brother and I found out at the same time that it was the Queen's Jubilee. So being the entrepreneurial type that we were, we told Ian 
that there was a concert that was being given at Buckingham Palace and there's no way we could get tickets. And did, did he know how we could procure four tickets? So he said, I don't know it's sold out. It's only 1,600 seats. I'm not sure it's going to happen. Two days later, we get a letter from Buckingham Palace with four tickets. So he really lined, he, he basically lined up the whole weekend for us, took us to Windsor, spent six hours in Windsor, lovely lunch with he and Sally. They, they knew everybody and all these pictures of Charles and Diane and Camilla and all, just all over the place in their private residence in Windsor Castle, which was the second largest behind the Queens. So my brother and I are going through this. And we're going, this is just, this is wonderful. This is the typical British. So it's getting to be about six o'clock. And Ian goes, let's go to the gift shop. And we go, okay, well, I got to go down there because it's the Queen's Jubilee. And he takes us into the gift shop. Well, he doesn't take us to the little trinkets, you know, the little hanging charms and stuff. He takes us back to the china and the silver. And he takes us back and says, look at these wonderful things. Well, my brother and I kind of looked at each other and went, yeah. He was also the chairman of the board of all the Queen's Trusts. So this was his way of saying, pony up, pal. Well, I just spent six hours with you. You guys are going to have to buy something here. Well, about $5,000 later, we walked out with the silver dishes. But it was, it, it was quite fun, but that's the way the British are. And to this day, we are good friends. He got us into flying Spitfires, which my brother and I both did, and, and has been a wonderful friend. So we have, th this is something, the Billy Fist Foundation, there's something that I truly love to do because we need to keep the relationship with the Brits and the Americans close. It really is a good relationship and we need to keep that. And you go over there and you meet people, they're just lovely and they love Americans, most of them. And it's, it's wonderful. So if I can leave you with anything, you know, get to England and get some relationships. It's, it's a great thing to have. Uh, thank you. I think it's one o'clock. Yeah. Thank you.